Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guest is Louise Rothfell, who's the, uh, who's a executive director, corporate development at Central Asia Metals, who are a diverse company that operates low cost mineral assets, producing uh, base metals. Um, and they have a lead zinc mine in North Macedonia and a copper operation in Kazakhstan. Uh, Lisa's a qualified geologist. Um, and has a background as a mining analyst um, and investor relations. Um, and she's here today to give us an update on Central Asia Metals. Um, and we're going to talk about ESG um, and also probably what investors are looking for in mining companies nowadays um, if they're looking to sort of invest in, in mining companies and invest in our industry. Um, so that's welcome, Louise, to the podcast. How are you doing, Louise? Hello. Hi. Good, thank Good. you. Yeah, good meeting yourself as well. So as we always start these podcasts off, I just wonder if you can just give us a little bit of a background about your career. As I mentioned, you're a geologist by trade. Um, you went into uh, being a mining analyst. So I just wonder if you can just walk us through that that journey. Yeah, sure. Um, well, suppose it was um, started really when I came to choose my A-levels at school. And, um, and for the first time that year, um, my school was putting on a new A-level in geology. So um, so I decided to give that a go and um, found out that I really enjoyed that as a subject. So when it came to choosing what to do at university, um, geology was, was my first choice. So um, I went to university at Liverpool, uh, studied pure geology there um, in 1997, graduated in 2000. Um, I then had a year off, went travelling around South America as people do. Um, and then I did a master's degree in mining geology at Camborne School of Mines in 2001. Uh, finished that in September 2002. Um, I think part of the reason, I, I think probably not dissimilar to lots of students, when I was doing my geology degree, I didn't really know exactly where my career would go or how to actually get a sort of job out of the end of it. So I chose mining geology because I was more interested in those types of that type of geology, really. Um, and so um, so I kind of went down that track. But I think it was when I was doing my master's degree, I, I realized that I was very interested in the kind of financial and economic aspects of the geology and really tying that in with, I guess, how businesses make money, how people create value. So at that point, um, I kind of knew I wanted to go towards working in the city, uh, something financial related. So I chose to do my dissertation on a topic which I thought would help me in that um, in that direction. So my dissertation was based on um, whether one would invest in copper and chromite deposits in Albania um, with not just taking the geology into account, but the country risk and um, you know the politics, tax, uh, mining law, all of those aspects that we look at. Um, either as a mining analyst or or business development or whatever. So that was really interesting. And while I was doing that, I met quite a few people who were ex-Camborne and were working in the city. And I was kind of asking them all how I would go about getting a job as a mining analyst. 
I, incidentally, I didn't really know what a mining analyst was at the time. I thought I'd like to be one, but I wasn't hundred percent sure what one would what one did. Um, but when I finished the masters was two thousand and two, and it was a pretty quiet time for the mining sector, um, and there was no real jobs going um, in the city in terms of a, a new mining analyst. So I went to work in the quarrying industry for a couple of years. I worked for Hanson Aggregates as it was at the time, and I worked in a quarry in uh, Cumbria. Um, I was there for two, two and a bit years. And, and that was brilliant, really, because it did give me good operational experience, um, certainly in terms of the processing plant, in terms of managing people as well. I was a kind of graduate trainee uh, quarry manager. So there's lots of interesting aspects that I learned there. Um, but I was still interested in going into the more finance side. And, and I had a call from a friend I'd made while I was doing my dissertation um, and she said there was a, a job going for a junior mining analyst in, in London. So I applied and, and got the job and I moved to London in 2004. Um, so I was a mining analyst for 10 years until 2014. I worked in a couple of smaller brokers early on. And my last job as an analyst, I was working for Investec. I think I, um, I had my son in 2012. He's now 10. And um I found the job quite difficult after that. I mean, the hours as a as a man as an analyst, any any equity analyst, you've got to be in the office kind of half past six in the morning, quarter to seven. It's pretty difficult with childcare, trying to find a balance, nursery, whatever to to take to take my son. So I did that for two years, um, but it was pretty pretty tricky. So um, I was offered a, a package to um, to leave Investec, which I which I'd effectively asked for. Um, so I left there with an idea of going into investor relations. Um, it's a relatively well trodden path for an ex analyst, um, although obviously I hadn't hadn't had, had any experience in that before. Um, so I did some ad hoc um, IR consulting. Um, for another group. And then I joined Central Asia Metals in 2015 and I've been there ever since. Okay. So, um, yeah, so it's a journey from obviously studying geology, then out to a mines, uh, a quarry site, then into the yeah. city. And obviously, like you said, you joined Central Asia Metals in uh, 2014, 2015. Um, so I just wondered if you can just tell us about the things that you've been doing whilst you've been at Central Asia Metals for the last seven years. And obviously you've moved into um, the board of directors as well, or we've been appointed to the board at Central Asia Metals. So I just want to you tell us a little bit about that and obviously your experience now being a, a member of the board. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, as I say, I joined Camel in, um, in 2015 and initially I was doing investor relations um, I was actually consulting one day a week. Uh, then it went to two days. It went to three days. It went to four days. And actually, only just in May this year, I started working five days uh, again. I um, and I think really that the job grew in the right kind of time as my son got older as well. I mean, he was two when I started working for Camel. Still very small, and I still wanted to spend you know a lot of time with him, but. As he's got older and I've had a bit more headspace, um, the role at Camel has grown. So it's been perfect, really, the way it has worked out. Um, and I think the, the job grew, I suppose, looking back, the job grew kind of the first time um, in towards the end of 2017 when we bought the Sasa mine in North Macedonia. So, you know, we went from not just talking about Kunrad and, and um, you know, doing my investor relations work on that, but also had a new 
a new uh, mind to get used to, to present, to, to um, write about, and also a, a whole new team to get to know. Um, so the job kind of grew there, which was great. And that was, you know, that was a nice challenge. And I think the next step then came probably early 2019, when we really started to focus our efforts on ESG reporting. Um, and so we started working towards sustainability reports, um, which, you know, ended up being part of the IR role, really, because there's a big push on, on ESG sustainability from the investor side as well. So that the reporting of those aspects, you know, came into my role as well, as well really. So the job grew from there. And then um, early last year, I uh, sort of more formally started to help out on business development as well. I'd always, you know, had a look at, at projects that we were interested in, um, but I kind of became more formally part of the team at the beginning of, of last year. So there was another aspect to the role, which, you know, which grew nicely as well. So all those things combined. Um, and then, as you say, I joined the board in May this year. Um, and the, the role is really one of corporate development. So it's still maintaining an overarching responsibility for investor relations and our, our overall communications. Um, it's also ESG reporting and you know strategy looking to the future for, for ESG and what's required of us there. And also uh, business development, um, you know, how we grow in the future. So those are really the three aspects. And as I say that, you know, the role has grown quite nicely from the one day a week, seven years ago to um, to the job today, I guess. Yeah. And obviously, you, you just said that you recently joined joined the board. How, how have you found that um, stepping into, I suppose, stepping into that type of role? I suppose starting with how I found uh, how I found it. It's great. I mean, it's another it's another challenge. It's, it's another step in developing yourself. And, you know, that's that can only be positive. I think I suppose I have um, I've gone from feeling like I was quite comfortable in terms of what I was doing and my capabilities. And it definitely feels like a step up. So I suppose I'll have a little bit of a time where I feel like I need to adjust and, you know, feel I'm on, I guess, on top of my game again. Um, so I still feel like I'm, I'm learning. You know, I've only been to two board meetings so far. I'm still really understanding you know, how all that works. And and I'm keen to add value, really. So I think that's my main focus, you know, trying to trying to make sure that I'm bringing something to the, to the party, really. So, yeah, I guess that's the um, that's the key focus. Yeah, certainly. Um, Centrage Metals have been supportive of, uh, of women in mining. Um, can you talk us through the journey in the industry um, and from your view on gender diversification? Uh, in the, within the mining industry, yeah, sure. I think I mean certainly there's groups like um, Women in Mining help massively with this, and I think most of us in our company, uh, men and women, are members of uh, of Women in Mining. Last year, we sponsored um, I think three um, three of our women at uh, at the two sites through the Women in Mining mentoring program. Um, we've put another four through that this year, and we've also. Um, provided three mentees as well in terms of Nigel, our CEO, Gavin, our CFO, and also Nick Shirley, who's our sustainability director. They're all their their mentees to some of the um, the women who are going through the program. Um, we've also got our group people manager Leanne Holmes. She's on the board of Women in Mining in Kazakhstan, um, and and Dr. Gillian Davidson, our our non exec, who's chair of the sustainability committee she's chairwoman of international women in mining so i think we're very involved and 
you know, very focused on having a good push on that. In terms of the industry overall, I think we are moving in the right direction. And, and I think that's largely because, you know, gender equality, gender diversification is firmly on the agenda now. It's talked about by all stakeholders, not least uh, not least the investors. And so it's, it is all, always front of mind. I think it starts by, you know, encouraging, I suppose, firstly, encouraging uh, girls and, and women to, to study these kind of STEM subjects at school. And I think also tied into that is the mining industry doing a you know a better job of, of promoting itself really for for all the positives that the mining industry brings, producing you know base metals as is our purpose essential for modern living, metals which are going to move us forward into the energy transition. It's a really exciting time to be part of the mining industry for for men or women really, and I think it's a time where you can feel you can do something really positive for the world. So it's getting that message out there. And also making clear that, you know, you don't have to be a, a mining engineer or a geologist or a mineral processor to, to get involved in the mining industry. There's all manner of other skills required, not least environmental science, hydrogeology, those kind of aspects. So I think it's really, um, you know, giving a kind of a, a good a good sales pitch, I suppose, into, you know, into, join, into joining the sector, really. Um, I mean, at, at Sasser and Kunrad, we've spent some time last year forming diversity and inclusion committees to try to get an understanding of how we could be a better employer for women, how we could attract more women to apply for jobs with us. And we've got some good ideas there, which we're pushing forward as well. Um, but I think overall, in, in terms of diversity, be it gender diversity, any other kind of diversity, we have to push for it, all of us, because more diversity must bring more diverse thoughts, which has to be better for how boards function, has to be better for how senior management teams function, and, and has to be better for teams on the ground as well. So I just think it's something that in general, it's so important, not just for the women themselves, but for how businesses operate to push for all manner of, of diversity. Yeah. And do you see more females getting that opportunity to move into board level roles? Obviously, you've just recently experienced it. But if you look around, do you see there is opportunities for females to step up into a board? Obviously, they've got to be given the chance. But do you see there's an encouragement for for females to uh, to move into that level? Yes, definitely. I think it is um, it is happening and it's happening quite quickly. Um, I think there's a push there's certainly a push from um, certain fund management groups and um, the likes of Fidelity, BlackRock, lots of other groups will have, um, you know, key percentages of women on boards that they push for and say, if they're, if we don't have X percent, sometimes it's 30 percent, those kinds of numbers of women on boards, and then, you know, they'll vote against certain directors or, or nomination committee, those kinds of um, I suppose those kinds of co corporate governance aspects are coming in more and more. Um, so I think this is this is creating a move to encourage more women onto boards. Um, I personally, I would, I would hate to think, and I don't think that I am, you know, fulfilling some sort of quota. I think that's pretty offensive to to most women on boards, and I think we would all hate to think that was what was going on. I don't believe that is generally what's going on, and so I think it's generally a recognition of saying, actually, let's. Let's try harder to maybe look instead of the most obvious candidates. There's also, I think, a push to 
you know, move away from what they would call your your Rolodex in general, you know, the contacts that you already have for board roles to make sure that you widen that to look farther afield. And I suppose having a push to, you know, attract more women onto the boards is, is maybe part of that. If they're not part of your contacts to look further, further afield, um, to find the right candidates. So I think there is a lot of, of positive um, movements going on in that area. And I think it will only continue, yes. Yeah, and I, I totally agree there. And I'm going to give a little plug for myself because I'm actually working with a junior minor that is looking to bring on board members um, and they want to look outside of the people that they know um, mm-hmm. and the people that they've spoken to in the past and people within the industry, not necessarily just within the industry, but looking at people maybe giving their first first opportunity or second opportunity, but just looking at that further afield. So, um, yeah, I yeah. totally agree. Totally agree. And I think it's supposed, I suppose it should be more encouraged as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously, the company, uh, Central Asia Metals, has established a strong set of ESG policies and targets. Um, what is the company's focus when it comes to social and in, uh, environmental engagement? Yeah, sure. I think we have. I think we, um, we, I suppose it's taking a step back. I think it was 2013 when we hired. Uh, a chap called Nick Shirley is our uh, CSR, as it was called at the time, CSR director. So he's been with us now for nine years. Um, and he was, you know, very quietly for a long time, making sure that we were doing all the things that we should do on the ground at Kunrad initially and then at SASA in terms of, you know, environmental, social governance, uh, community relations, all of those aspects. Um and it, going back to then 2019 uh, was really when we started to get a, a strong understanding from our shareholders that they wanted us to get better at reporting and disclosures of our efforts in terms of sustainability and ESG. Um, so at that point, you know, we had a pretty steep learning curve to go through to, to work out what was expected from us, what other peer companies were doing, um, what we should disclose. I think I was, you know, very pleased that when I started delving into the sorts of aspects that we should be looking at, that um, we were already pretty much doing all these things on the ground. It's just we weren't we weren't articulating them well enough. So what we what we originally did was a kind of desktop materiality um, assessment to really work out the key important topics in terms of sustainability for us. And then we separated those into five key pillars, as we call them. So the first one is, is governance. And we've got health and safety, looking after our employees, looking after the environment and looking after the communities around us, I guess. So what we've done since then, we've published three standalone sustainability reports. The last two have been to these global reporting standards. Um, And once you report um, and you lay out your data, um, you know, which kind of uh, backs up each of the topics that are material to you, you then um, on a bit of a treadmill to set yourself targets to improve for the future. And this really is the key purpose of sustainability reporting, really. It's not just the disclosures. It's actually, you know, making you push yourself to do better in these areas. And I think that's what we've done. So we have set ourselves targets in all of those key areas. I suppose, you know, health and safety is always 
got to be our number one priority. So we set ourselves targets for reducing the number of um, lost time injuries that that we have on on an annual basis and therefore our lost time injury frequency rate. Also really important to us um, and and also to our other stakeholders, not least the investors, uh, some key environmental aspects. So greenhouse gas emissions. We've set ourselves target to uh, reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 50% before 2030 from a 2020 base. We've also set ourselves targets to reduce freshwater abstraction at SASA and also to store our tailings waste at SASA in more environmentally responsible manner, I suppose. Um, in terms of community, you know, it's really, it's really, really important to have strong community relationships. So we push things like local uh, local employment, local procurement, and also community support as well. Um, we have two charitable foundations, one for each of the sites, and we fund those with 0.25% of our revenue. Um, that will be we'll, we've we've made a commitment to increase that towards 0.5% of our revenue um, for the longer term. And also, we're working on projects, particularly in North Macedonia, to try to. Uh, work with the community, with the local mayor to, to work to generate jobs which are unrelated to the mine, really. So long-term sustainable employment. So at whatever point in the future when the mine closes, the community can still thrive. So we're looking at more kind of structural projects for the long term like that as well. Um, so it's hard to say where our, our top priority is, but I think if I look at all of the key the five key areas, you know, we've got key aspects that we are working on within those uh, kind of ESG pillars that we that we report on. Um, obviously, I want to talk about the, the company's uh, projects, uh, the Conrad and the Sasa projects. Obviously, you're producing copper, zinc and lead from them. Um, just want to just give us a, a quick update on the projects and also what's contributed to the success of, of them. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, with with Kunrad, I um, I can't claim too much glory there because that was uh, that was built before my time. Um, but I think Kunrad is, is is a very interesting operation. It's not a traditional mine. So we're leaching in situ copper from waste dumps there that were generated from mining in in the Soviet times from the 1930s. So it's a relatively uh, un- unusual style of operation. Um, the copper is produced by electrolysis in a process called uh, SXEW, and we were the first group in Kazakhstan to do that, to use that that technology. And I think at the time, what you know, what we did well, we had a strong a technical team at uh, you know, kind of senior management and board level. Um, we built the project ourselves. Really, there was key aspects we we purchased ourselves. We were responsible for the overall project um execution and because of that we were able to control you know much more of the aspects and and we came we came in with that project on time and and almost 10 million dollars under budget so that was a that was a good positive from the start and i think there because we don't move any material at all um we only really we don't really incur mining costs we only really incur processing costs so it's always been a really low cost producer and that then can weather any storms of uh, commodity prices or inflation or you know whatever happens with the local currencies etc so i think that was that was built well and it's been a really good a really good asset in terms of sasa 
when we bought that in 2017, that was a under that's a, a producing mine. It's an underground zinc and lead mine which had been in production um, in, in various ways, shape, or form since the 1960s. So, in terms of the success of that one, I think that really came down to the sort of business development efforts, really, and making sure that we did our due diligence properly and and very thoroughly, making sure that we were confident in in what we're prepared to pay for the asset. And um, and really the way we structured the deal. So we, we took on some debt, we issued some equity, but I feel like we got the balance right to you know, be able to repay the debt and not and not stress the balance sheet, um, but also making sure that the deal was, you know, was accretive as well for, for shareholders. So I feel like we kind of we, we got that right in terms of appraising the asset in the first place. Then, you know, once you once you've now owned something with the best will in the world, you don't know it fully until it's yours and you can really get under the bonnet and uh, no matter how much you, due diligence you do. So we set to work quite early on, really doing a full what we call a life of mine study um, to really make sure that the, the mine was set up for the long term. Um, and as a result of that work, we have uh, implemented a, a project called the Cut and Fill Project, where we're going to change the mining method um, and in doing so, um, that actually involves a better storage of tailings, which ties into the target I mentioned earlier. Um, it should reduce our water consumption. Again, ties into the target I mentioned earlier in terms of water. Uh, it should make the operation safer. It should be positive from community aspects. So I think all that ties in quite nicely. And, and once we've completed that project, which really the sort of construction phases of which will be undertaken next year and should be completed towards the end of next year we've really got the mind then that should be set fair like Kunrad is for for the long term so um I think that's you know that's a really important piece of work and and as I say that'll that'll set us up well for for the life of the mine which is out to 2037 um and I guess taking the two assets into account then what's made the company successful I guess I think because Kunrad was so cash generative, worked well uh, early on. We instigated a dividend policy in 2012. Um, and we've we've really set our stall out with that, I suppose. We've paid dividends uh, every six months since. We've only missed one dividend payment, which was in, in March 2020 of COVID times. That was the only one we've missed. So we're a very reliable dividend payer. And I think it's not just the dividends. It's the... Um, I suppose the capital discipline that's come to us through paying those dividends. When we look at business development activities, we do that with one eye on the dividend that we will be able to generate cash going forward. So it does, it I suppose, forms our way of thinking. Um, and we've we've paid now, I mean, with a market cap of around about 500 million US dollars, we've paid more than half of that out in 10 years as dividends. While doing that, we've also repaid the debt that we took on to buy Sasa, we've invested in the projects and you know we've supported our other stakeholders as well. So I think all in all, it's been a positive story. It's it's not, it's never easy every single day, and there's there's ups and downs, and obviously two operations that we've got to manage well. Um, and I think you know the other key aspect is wherever it is possible, is is under-promising and over-delivering, being you know very pragmatic and honest with ourselves about what we're able to do in terms of production costs. Etc. and kind of articulating that well as well. What would you say investors are looking for in mining companies if they were to invest? What, what are, I suppose, the main key areas? And also, why 
why are investors investing in Central Asia metals? Yeah, I think I think a lot of it. It does. It obviously does depend because um, shareholders have different aspects. You know, it, if in my mind, there's three reasons to to invest in shares. You know, one is a value side of things. You think the shares are you think the shares are cheap. They're undervalued. There's a growth aspect. Uh, you think the business is going to grow significantly over the next few years. Therefore, your earnings going to grow and the share price is going to grow. And the third reason is for income. You know, you think it'll it'll give you a good yield. Very simplistically, those are my three reasons why you would buy shares. And I think for us, you know, there's there's a case we can make a, a strong case for feeling that we are undervalued. But every you know every mining company will will tell you that. But obviously, what we do offer is is the income side of things. So we've got um, we have got a large number of income funds on our share register. Um, but also it goes back to that part of, of capital discipline as well. Um, I think, it, you know, in the past, some mining companies have had a, a bad reputation for maybe overspending on capital projects or making bad decisions in terms of um, M&A or, or whatever. And I think the, the capital discipline aspect that our dividend brings is something that some of our shareholders have said to us that they they appreciate in terms of our mindset. So I think we, you know, we may be quite conservative from that perspective. Um, and I think also we, we're quite defensive as well because our costs have been historically quite low. Um, when commodity prices rise, our share price may, may not rise as much as others whose costs are higher because we're not as leveraged from that perspective. But um when commodity prices are weakening, when inflation is a big issue and costs are rising, you know, our, our share price will not fall as much as other mining companies because we've got a low cost base and, and therefore, you know, we're not immune to inflation. Of course we're not, but but that's going to hit us from a low cost base. So I think there's a bit of a defensive aspect, some exposure that we offer to, you know, to copper and other base metals, but from quite a d- defensive perspective as well. Um, and concluding, um, what's the future for uh, future strategy for Central Asia Metals, um, and how does the company envisage its growth uh, over the coming years? Yeah, it's it's a good question. It's, it is one we get asked a lot because we, you know, we're very we're very transparent and honest. We haven't got huge amounts of organic growth in our business. Uh, Kunrad, our our assets effectively are sat on the surface. They are these waste dumps, and there's there's little in the way of additional ore there. We're not going to find more uh, more resources per se. So that is really as it is, and we've got a life out there to 2034. At Sasa, there is some uh, exploration potential, but I, I don't think it's it's something that's necessarily going to double the production rate or double the length of of the of the operation. Um, you know, hopefully we we add another he- a year on here or there, and that would be a nice outcome at Sasa. And Sasa at the moment has, has got a life out to 2037. So we've got two good um, low-cost, long-life operations, um, and that is a really good base to grow from. And so when, when we talk about growth, we really are talking about uh, M&A, about that kind of business development. Um, having just repaid all of the debt that we took on to um, to buy Sasa by August this year, we've got a really strong balance sheet as well. The, the, the challenging bit is what the next asset's going to be and where to find it, because we'd, we'd ideally love another copper asset. That would be our top pick in terms of the future potential, our, our belief for the copper price. Um, but finding a copper asset, the right sort of size for us, 
um, in a jurisdiction we're comfortable with is not always easy. So we have kind of widened our view to other metals as well, um, as as our purpose is uh, base metals essential for modern living. So we're more than happy with zinc. Obviously, we've got a zinc operation as it is. Zinc and lead quite quite often come together. We'd be interested in nickel as well and, and other similar metals. So those are the kind of commodities that we're interested in. Um, geographically, we, we're very comfortable with Kazakhstan um, and we're putting quite a bit of effort at the moment into looking for earlier stage exploration projects there because we think it's quite prospective for that. So that's probably a key stage of development asset that we're looking for in Kazakhstan. And then elsewhere, we, you know, we'd ideally like to look in the kind of European time zone, really. So Europe and some African countries for for our next assets. Um, I think while we still had a lot of debt, we were focused on buying production assets because at least whatever we paid for them, we could afford to take on some debt, maybe issue some equity if needed, but have the cash flow from that asset, asset to be paying the debt back and paying the dividends as well. So that was a key focus then. But I think now that the balance sheet is so strong, um, we can look a little bit further down the development curve as well towards some projects that need building or, as I say, further down in terms of exploration as well in, in Kazakhstan. So um, and we always feel like we give a bit of a woolly answer to this because it isn't it isn't so straightforward. But we do look at a lot of opportunities. I think in the first half of this year, we looked at 23 opportunities we signed um, non-disclosure agreements for 10 of those. So, you know, you can look at that. We looked at those quite carefully. Um, and, you know, we we used external consultants, I think, for one of the opportunities. So, again, you can get a feel for, you know, time and, and money we're prepared to spend on these things. So um, I think we are we are putting a huge amount of effort into business development. Um, and hopefully the right opportunity will come about. The one thing that we always clear to emphasise is we're not in a rush because we've got these two great operations in in Kunrad and Sasa, both with long lives. Um, you know, we can we can um we can stay in this position for as long as needed, really, because you know, we are, we have got two great assets. We're paying our dividend um and we're generating cash. So I think we are in a strong position from that perspective as well. Louise, thank you for your time. Uh, appreciate you giving us an update on Central Asia Metals. Um, it seems you're in a very strong position as a company. Um, I suppose moving forward, it's deciding on uh, commodity, jurisdiction, yeah. and obviously f- trying to find the right project that suits you and suits obviously um, your, your culture um, and Absolutely. your values as well. So wish you well for the future. Um, perhaps you can come on uh, next year on the podcast with an update on maybe a project that you've uh, that you've acquired. That would be great. Yeah. If our Fantastic. audience, Thank if you. if our audience wants to reach out to you, if they've got any questions um, around obviously anything you've said or want to get some more information around Central Asia Metals, how can they go yeah. about doing that? Are you across any social media platforms? Yeah, we are, and uh, my uh, my contact details are on our website as well. So yeah, more than happy to uh, to chat to whoever. Um, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Okay, we'll include those in the show notes accompanying this, and if you're watching on the YouTube video, they'll be below. Um, and yeah, if you've got any questions for Louise and for uh, questions around Central Asia Metals, um, feel free to obviously reach out reach out to Louise and her team. Thank you for listening. Appreciate you. Um, if you can share the, or appreciate your continued support and um, 
appreciate if you can share this episode to others around the world, whether you're in Europe, whether you're in South America, whether you're in Australia, anywhere, where, wherever you are in the world. Um, just like I said, appreciate your continued support. Um, share this episode amongst your friends, family, others in the industry um, that may be looking, that may be interested in base metal operations and, and maybe, um, or you might even have a project that you want to maybe float past into Asian metals. So um, appreciate your continued support as again. And until next time, happy mining. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.